Hi, Luiso. Hey, Gail. What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about poverty. Still? Yeah, still happening. But hopefully by the end of this episode, we might be on our way to no longer having to. Hi, I'm Luiso Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. Mm, so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. You know, the big stuff. All the big stuff. This week we're talking about the biggest thing of all, money. That's right, what role does money play in ending extreme poverty? We're joined today by one of the most successful podcasters of Great Britain. Uh, what? Surely that's me by now? It's almost us. He's also the president of the non-profit Give Directly, Rory Stewart. Rory Stewart, he is big. Cash is, is replicable and scalable across almost any context in a way that almost no other intervention is. And he's going to be in conversation with the rebel of Davos, Rutger Bregman, famous historian, writer and anti-poverty campaigner. By definition, this wealth is a product of the work that we're all doing together. And I think a basic income is just a recognition of that fact that we all deserve our share of that collective wealth. Hi, Gail. Good morning, Luiso. How are you? Good. I'm good. Yeah, I could uh, do with a little bit more uh, money in my pocket, but I think that's uh, a never ending. I think that's something even billionaires say. You know, I could do. I could do with an extra billion. Oh, I can't. Well, we're talking about money today because we're talking about no poverty. Global goal number one. But speaking of that, why is it that rich people are always the tightest? Isn't it? They're always the ones who are moaning about money or refusing to give it away, philanthropically speaking. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what it is because I, I, I don't know. It's, I think money. There's no right mindset with money because that's the thing right now. You know, any podcast, any motivational speaker, your your money mindset is wrong. I think all of our money mindsets are wrong at every level of money in some kind of way, you know, whether it's the money that makes you poor, the money that gets you stuck in middle class and you can't get out of that, like whatever your debt life is in middle class, or you're a billionaire, like I can't give it away that I'm not a billionaire or must be sexy money whenever I, you know, whatever I do. I mean, it's a thing. It's always a thing. It's always a thing. And it's, it's the weirdest thing to be a thing. And if that's what we're battling with inside our little lives, how are we going to make the difference, you know, as people on the big money stuff for the world? You know, like poverty. Poverty is this thing that needs money. It needs resources. And it's like, if we can't look at our resources in the house and how are we going to now take some kind of good mental state, some kind of good vision, how are we going to move forward on this? It seems, it seems like we have to battle the thing the atm of our minds yeah, the atm of our minds first yes but you know we have to do it we have to get out there because the numbers are completely and utterly mind-blowing it is without question true we both are rich if you look at the global picture right we both will sit comfortably in the top uh -huh. two or three percent of wealth earners in the world uh -huh. because 50 percent of eight billion people have less than seven and a half dollars a day to spend i mean that is unbelievable and then this goal in particular talks about eradicating extreme poverty, which is now down to $2.15 a day. What does that even mean? I mean... Well, how do you... I mean, where do you even start? So I can... You can see how people fail to address, right? How do I get involved with that? And also, like, 
that just seems like a low bar to to somebody to to us rich people, you and yeah. I, Gail. It's numbers that are beyond. It's situations that are beyond. And also, my gosh, have we not seen the pictures and heard the stories oh, for so long since Ethiopia, nineteen ninety, or Somalia this time, or nineteen eighty five was Band Aid, or this nineteen eighty five and Band Aid, and it's like, how much do we even see it? Do we hear the message? Do we keep scrolling? Do we even know we're scrolling past it anymore? Or is it just like, ah, no, that's not a cat video. You know, it's like, has it gotten to that point? Maybe that's the answer. You need to just put gentle meowing over all the appeal films. Meow. (laughs) It's not the answer. It's not the The answer. The power of a cat. But I think when you think about what it means, like that, that living on less than two pounds a day, that probably means you haven't got your own toilet, you haven't got a source of drinking water, you haven't got electricity, you probably haven't got a roof. You know, it's so enormous, but I'm really, really pleased that today we're joined by, let's say, two of the world's leading voices on what to do about it. Not just as a global system, but actually as individuals, what can we do to try and move this on once and for all? So we have got Rory Stewart, who is the president of an NGO called Give Directly. And it's such a simple premise. Give people who don't have enough money cash. So we'll hear from him about why that isn't as straightforward as it might sound. And we've also got Rutger Bregman, who is an author and a historian, who has written a lot about the universal basic income and what it means to cover people's basic costs. Okay, so Rory Stewart and Rutger Bregman, welcome to An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. Thanks for joining us. Great pleasure. Thanks for having us. We are talking about global goal number one in this episode, No Poverty, uh, about which both of you have spoken and written a lot. So I'm so thrilled to have your opinions. Rory, I'm going to turn to you first. Can you, for the listeners of this podcast, help us understand where we are in this goal? I'm reflecting that... In 2005, we were supposed to be making poverty history, and it's clearly not happened. So give us your perspective on where we are. What are we doing in this goal? Well, it, it's, it's fascinating. Um, you're absolutely right. Many people listening to this podcast will have grown up in an environment of trying to make poverty history. And that remains the goal for 2030 of the United Nations. But the truth is, although a lot of progress has been made, particularly dramatically in places like China, where literally many hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. The story in a lot of the rest of the world is pretty depressing. In Africa, for example, there were 170 million people living in extreme poverty in 1980, and there are 470 million people living in extreme poverty in Africa today. So although in percentage terms, there's been a slight decline because the overall population has gone up, the absolute numbers have increased. And and in other countries like Liberia, the numbers have increased not just in absolute terms, but in percentage terms as well. DRC would be another example. Nigeria would be another example. I'm glad you said that it's the countries you represent there, obviously from the developing world. Rutger, just to bring you in, you have focused somewhat in your work on poverty also existing in the developed world. So from your perspective in that part of the world, what is going on with this goal? Yeah, well, if we look at poverty in the rich countries, we have to keep in mind, obviously, that you know, if you're poor in a rich countries, um, you're still relatively rich, very rich, actually. So, for example, in the country where I'm from, the Netherlands, we have a poverty line that is around $35 per day. And as we know, 
the poverty line with regards to extreme poverty is around $2 per day. Actually, you know, around 50% of the world population lives of less than, than $7 per day. So I sometimes try to remind my friends on the left, you know, that it's not enough to care about the working class in rich countries. The world is a much bigger place, actually. There's this great website from the organization called Giving What We Can, and it has a how rich am I calculator? So you can fill in your income and then you can find where you are in the global income distribution. And it turns out that if you have a median wage in say the US or Western Europe, you're already part of the 3% richest in the world. Very easy for us to forget. We often are angry about, you know, the, the bankers who are so greedy, you know, the 1% as, as the Occupy Wall Street protesters said it, and, uh, you know, we had good reasons to be angry, obviously. But then again, many of us, I think also think many people listening to this podcast will have to take in mind that relatively speaking, you know, they're part of the of the 1%. Talking about understanding the numbers, because I'm like, that, that seems crazy that you, so many people probably don't even know they're in the 3%. What do these numbers actually mean, especially when you say things like oh, it was two, two and a half dollars a day? I mean, what is that? Is that measured on certain life that comes with two and a half dollars a day? What we hear that number, and I don't, I don't think I understand what it actually means. What is two and a half dollars? So, generally speaking, when we talk about poverty in wealthier countries, we're talking about relative poverty. When I was talking about four hundred and seventy million people in poverty in Africa, I'm talking about extreme poverty, and as you say, that's people living on less than two dollars fifteen cents a day. And that means people who cannot meet their most basic needs. Typically, if you were to, let's say, visit a village on the Rwanda-Burundi border, that would be somebody living in a single room mud building. They would be eating, if they were lucky, one meal a day. Their children would probably struggle to get to school because although the school's theoretically free, you need small amounts of money to access school. They would probably have a grass roof on their house, which leaked and needed to be replaced. They'd probably be sleeping on the floor. They wouldn't have a mattress. They probably wouldn't own any livestock and be struggling to plant food. And their life expectancy as a result would be poor. Their children would be suffering from malnutrition, stunting, problems with bone density, problems actually with their, their educational development that come from malnutrition. So extreme poverty is a way of describing humans who are in a situation in which it's impossible for them to meet their most basic needs. I think have, helping everyone understand quite how low down those, the ability to meet those needs these people are, Rory, is that, that's really helpful. Thank you. Now, just to put a point of, I'm not, it's not a point of view and it's definitely not my point of view, but much of the traditional poverty campaigning that I've seen in my lifetime seemed especially, even still make poverty history, was appealing to people's sort of moral this is terrible for that. You know, you must help. It's not fair that these people live like this and you live like that. And that doesn't seem to have worked. So is there a way of appealing to the self-interest of the wealthy 3%, the top 3% and saying, and this is a problem to you because? So I guess I would be a little bit more optimistic about on the question whether that has actually worked. So I know there are a lot of aid skeptics today, uh, but I think the main fact that we should know about aid is just it's a very small amount of money. And uh, there's a good case to be made that even with that little money that we've spent the last couple of decades, we have actually made progress. Again, it all depends on what your perspective is, right? It, you know, I'm trained as a historian, and if you zoom out far enough, then you can see enormous progress. Actually, for the biggest part of human history, pretty much everyone everywhere all the time was extremely poor. 
So up until the year 1800, you know, extreme poverty was basically the norm uh, around the globe. And ever since then, extreme poverty has declined by 90%. And much of that has happened actually in the last 30 years. So again, it depends a little bit on your perspective. Now, what I always like to say is that poverty is something we can't afford. Poverty is really expensive. Poverty is an extraordinary waste of talent. It's an extraordinary waste of human capital. If you just think about how many lost Einsteins there are in poor countries, you know, just so many people who could go on and do amazing things and innovate and build companies, you know, and, and realize their dreams. The simple truth about humanity is that we are rich because we depend on one another, because we can cooperate on a skill that no other animal in the whole animal kingdom can do. So in that respect, yes, it's pretty easy to make a self-interested case for eradicating poverty. And, uh, you know, there have been dozens and dozens of studies that show that um, these kind of programs are actually investments that benefit all of us. I'm glad you brought up the idea of aid and uplifting the kinds of people and minds that could really contribute not just to their own countries, but to, you know, people moving forward. But there is a stain on the idea of aid, especially mm-hmm. on, this, on, on the continent of Africa, uh, where even Africans are like, no, thank you. We've seen this aid thing that you guys keep bringing and it's doing nothing for us. Rory, as you're working in Give Directly, which is about people, the average, everyday people like me, giving directly to the people who need, how is this different from the idea of $1 a day, which we all grew up hearing? What we do in Give Directly is we don't tell people what to do. We respect their dignity. One of the problems about a lot of the eight models is that they have been quite patronizing and often very expensively patronizing. Huge amount of money is consumed in what's called capacity building or training, salaries, consultants. I remember talking to somebody recently in Rwanda who had received a lot of training on fertilizer and seeds and said how wonderful the training had been. And I'd said, has that made a difference to your farming practice? And he said, no, because they spent all the money on the training. There was no money left over to buy any fertilizer or seeds. But this is not unusual. Furthermore, I think it's important to understand that Trusting people, giving the very poorest in the world cash is not just about their dignity. It's also about unlocking their creativity and freedom. They can determine much more efficiently than somebody in a capital city thousands of miles away what their real needs are. And they can adjust to micro needs. One house may be quite different to another. I may be lucky enough to have a tin roof, so I don't need the money for my house. I may need the money to get my children to school. Or my auntie may be sick and I need the money for her health care. You can't do that with a conventional shelter education health program because they treat everybody as though their needs are the same and their requirements are the same. Yeah, you know, there's this silly saying that you keep hearing all the time. People love to say that you shouldn't give a man a fish, but teach him how to fish. And I think that's an incredibly stupid idea because maybe the man doesn't like to fish. Maybe the man doesn't even eat fish. I mean, it's incredibly arrogant for us to presume that the man wants fish. Well, that he's a man. Yeah, maybe he's a woman. Maybe he is a woman. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Do I have a goal number five? <laughs> so this is what I love about Give Directly. You know, it doesn't assume to know what people want to do in their lives. The poor are the real experts on their own lives. Mm. So that that's really essential. It's an essential insight that we should keep coming back to. And one other idea, by the way, that I liked that I recently read about, I'm, I'm curious to hear your view on that, Rory is to reframe the idea of aid and basically called reparations. Because we all know that, for example, because of very 
unjust or unequal trade agreements. You know, in many respects, rich corporations in the West or countries have helped back the growth in many African countries. Maybe this reframing could also help us to move forward. Well, one aspect of this, which which is related, is not directly related to reparations, but it's got a relation, is is the question of climate change. Because, of course, the people who are suffering most from climate change are the extreme poor. And they are, by definition, the people who have caused climate change least. Somalia, for example, emits almost nothing. And yet it's gone into its fourth year now of drought. A horrible situation in which 17 million people now on the edge of starvation. So I think part of the question of reparations is not just about unfair trading structures or colonial past, but also the the mere fact that through our own pollution, we are imposing misery on hundreds of millions of people. And one of the things that cash allows you to do is to build up resilience so that when the cyclone hits, when the drought hits, you have a little bit more to support yourself, a little bit of livestock, a roof on your house, which allows you maybe to collect a bit of water off the roof a kid in school, these, that tiny amount of money, getting the financial resources to allow you to save up $200, $300 can literally make the difference between life and death when you hit a climate emergency. I'm glad you bring in climate crisis and emergencies there, Rory, because I, I was listening to a podcast with you recently when you were interviewing Bernie Sanders, and I think you were asking him about his priorities and you were doing it as an example of a choice rather than a preference from you, but you seem to stack poverty above climate change. I'm just very struck when we launched the goals, there was quite there's quite a standoff between the development world and the climate world because each were arguing about which was more urgent. And I'm glad you bring them both together there because of course they are so linked. But can you just explain to us, John, do you believe that you that poverty needs to be prioritized over climate change? Or do you think there are as you were going down that answer there? actually very, very closely linked together? Well, I think they are very closely linked together. And, you know, obviously I'm passionate about climate change. And one of the things that I did as the Minister for International Development, I was the, in charge of the UK's $20 billion a year budget, is to double the amount that we spent of that international development budget on climate and the environment. But that's partly because climate change will, on the World Bank predictions, lead to 100 million more people being pulled into extreme poverty. And I think one of the things that makes me anxious is that donors can have a slight attention deficit disorder. There's a tendency of people to be interested in poverty in the 1990s and then become interested in climate. And then they might go go on to be interested in gender. And it's often a bit frustrating to go and talk to people with the resources to lift a thousand families into a very different economic situation. I get a little frustrated when they say, oh, I'm not very interested. And, and one of the sad things is, is that, yeah, if you look at how climate money is increasingly being spent, there's a hundred billion dollars theoretically available now for climate interventions. But an enormous amount of it is now being targeted towards middle-income countries, being targeted towards stopping Indonesia from emitting, because it's targeting the countries that are emitting most. It's not. And since that money often comes from the international development budgets, it's taking the money away from the extreme poor that are on the receiving end of the consequences. I have a question, just slightly going back to that point about focus, where, you know, if it's Bono looking at it, then everyone's talking about poverty, then Beyonce might pop up and then it's gender. And now we've got, you know, Leonardo talking about climate change. And and if if we're really beholden to this sort of crazy cycle of of attention span and attention deficits, then we're never going to get anywhere. How can we get over that so that we are actually intervening, as as you both said before, how do we get the sustained attention 
of people with the power to change it to be throwing it to the people who need it the most? I realise that's an enormous homework question. One of the problems is the problem around evidence. So there's a lot of talk about evidence-led policy. In the case of cash, there have been more than 300 academic papers, including an incredible number of randomized control tests, equivalent to a medical trial where we would, for example, give money to 10,000 randomly selected people and not give money to 10,000 randomly selected people and then measure the impact over three years, six years, nine years, 12 years. The results are staggering. The 12-year study found a convergence with a control group after nine years and then a divergence again on a single $350 transfer 12 years earlier. You could still see a sustained impact against wow. the control group. We've seen cash outperform nutrition programs in nutrition. We've seen cash outperform business development programs in creating businesses. And yet, despite all this evidence, which is very, very expensive to gather, it involves universities, huge studies, massive sample sizes. It's very difficult to go to the policymakers and say, you funded us to prove that actually giving people cash leads to better nutrition outcomes in your nutrition program, but you're still doing your own nutrition program when we could be doing this more efficiently. Yeah, I, that's, it's such a brilliant point that you bring up. Like this, this idea of, I really want to drive it home, this idea of the effect of giving cash and trusting people, especially after um, something uh, Ritka said, which was uh, what we assume about other people is what we end up getting out of them. And I think that's the hurdle for you, your layman is like, what's my money going to do? I'm like, they're going to the old, they'll spend it on drugs or whatever. I want people at home to know exactly how you know what your money is going to do. Because I think that's the big hurdle is like, what will it do? The way I look at it is that we should see cash as a benchmark. Uh, indeed, there have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of studies uh, across the world into um, the effects of cash. There's really been a cash revolution you know, in many, many countries, especially in the global south, where policymakers and NGOs have basically started to give people money, sometimes with small conditions attached, such as sending your kids to school or getting vaccination shots or something like that. And again and again and again, you know, it seems to work extraordinarily well. Now, I do believe that sometimes there are ideas that may be better. I already men mentioned the Against Malaria Foundation. But the thing is, is that the proof of burden is on anyone who wants to do something else than cash. If you really have such a great idea, then give us the evidence, you know, show it. And, and the burden of proof is on you. If you cannot provide us with that evidence, then just, just give people the money themselves. That, that's basically, yeah. I just wanted to add to, to, to Ruka's point. Um, at the moment, these people who study interventions, which are meant to be more cost-effective than cash, come up with $200, $300 million worth of projects. But there are currently $170 billion worth of international development spend a year. And cash can absorb that. Cash can go to scale. Cash is, is replicable and scalable across almost any context in a way that almost no other intervention is. So. And finally, I think cash is the most fundamental poverty intervention. There are some very, very good interventions if your fundamental objective is to save lives or extend life expectancy. But if your fundamental objective is to lift people out of extreme poverty, and we're talking here about SDG 1, I can't think of anything that's more effective than cash. Well, so my question is, if cash is the, uh, is the answer, the most efficient way to lift people out of poverty, and you've convinced me completely, so I agree with you, and often on this podcast, we're finding how funny it is and how complicated we've made a very simple problem. 
Why don't ministers of development believe their own data that they've commissioned, like you say, in another bonkers loop where they've asked you to prove it, you prove it, and then they ignore the advice? Why are we not doing this at scale as governments and having to rely on an NGO to do it, which, as we know, is like a lot harder work? I think partly this is to do with psychologically the difficulties that Rukba talked about, that we've all been brought up on the idea that you shouldn't give someone a fish, you should teach them to fish. And cash sounds like a massive fish-giving program. We need to explain the transformatory impact of cash, making people understand voters, politicians, philanthropists, and to see the multiplier effects of cash, to try to understand the economics of it, that in our Kenya studies, $1 of cash given has $2.50 of impact across the wider economy because you're putting your cash to work, putting a roof on your house, and that's providing employment for somebody else who's building that roof. You're buying a cow, somebody else can set up a shop selling veterinary medicine. You have a barber's shop seeing one uh, customer a day and suddenly some cash comes into the economy, you're getting six customers a day. So understanding that it isn't, I think it does sound a bit absurd, it's just $1 for $1. I think understanding that actually the dollar creates $2.50 worth of additional economic activity is, is, is a very, very important part of the story. And that's why the recent study from Kenya is so powerful. Let's turn now to another way we might look at this goal being uh, further addressed and achieved, which is an argument that you've made many times, Rudger, and that's for universal basic income. So you've become Yay, quite famous favorite. for talking about this. Why are you singing that? Does it sound like a band? I love the it's idea like BTS. of it. My favourite idea. Would you... Oh, well, because you get paid to do nothing. Yeah. Well, let's let Rudger <laughs> explain what it is and give us a, an idiot's guide to what it means and why do you think it's a good idea? Sure. It's a really simple idea, actually. I love to call it venture capital for the people. It basically means that everyone would receive a monthly grant that is enough to pay for your basic needs, food, shelter, education, healthcare, etc. And... On top of that, you're allowed to earn as much as you want. So it's not communism. It's not like we'll we'll share everything equally, uh, but it does put a floor in the income distribution. That's basically it. It's completely unconditional. It's universal. Everyone gets it, whether you're rich or poor, young, old, men, women, doesn't matter. And uh, it would basically abolish poverty because by definition, it would be said above the poverty line so that no one could ever live in poverty anymore. Yeah, the idea has been getting a huge amount of traction in the last 10 years. In, in the US, there are now dozens of experiments happening. And again, it's, it's really easy to make the empirical case here. So in my view, this should not be so much about ideology, about what you think people will do, but we should really, you know, look at reality and see uh, how it really works in practice. And it's actually that re reality that, you know, studying the empirical case, that's made me a UBI advocate. And where does the money come from in a world where UBI is universal? Taxes, obviously. Great. Back on <laughs> my favourite subject, yeah. especially when talking to you, because I was there in 2019 when you raised this little thorny issue. Let's bring tax in. So is, is tax the third missing link then? So we have the idea that we just give money directly to the people who need it the most. That's the people who are in extreme poverty to get them out. Then as a maintenance system, we have UBI. Is the third thing to close the loop and then we need to, back to Bernie Sanders, bring uh -huh. down the billionaires who aren't paying any tax and just reform the whole taxation system. I know that sounds easier than it uh, would be to do, but yeah. is that the answer? Well, it's funny that sometimes people worry that the poor will become lazy because they get this free money, but we already have a class that gets an enormous amount of free money and it's the rich. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we've had a huge class of people who are rent seekers and, you know, get huge inheritance, etc. And we never worry like, oh, you know. Uh, rich people are going to be the, the, lazy. They're too lazy because they get, <laughs> we should well, tax their tax inheritance, breaks, blah, blah, blah. making them yeah. lazy. <laughs> exactly. So, I don't know. The, the way I look at it is we could we could see it in a little bit of a philosophical way. You know, we humans individually, of course, we don't contribute all that much. There's only so much we can do. Wealth is a product of our collective enterprise, right? I mean, I'm using technology now that I've, I've no clue how it actually works, this microphone, the computer in front of me. But I think no one really has. You know, we humans are super specializers and, and it's because we are so good at cooperating that we've become so wealthy. So by definition, this wealth is a product of the work that we're all doing together. And I think a basic income is just a recognition of that fact that we all deserve our share of that collective wealth, of that collective rent that is that, that is generated every year. So in Silicon Valley, the, they have this notion of, uh, am I allowed to? Well, it's a technical term. Go on. Fuck you money. Uh, that's <laughs> what they use in Silicon Valley to say that you can say no to a job that you don't want to do or yeah, basically have more freedom. The freedom to say no in your life is really, really important. And a basic income would give F you money to everyone, basically. Uh, and I think that will generate an extraordinary amount of creativity, innovation, and you name it. Rory, why on earth do governments not address taxation as a means to give themselves a lot more money to play with? It does seem to me screamingly obvious that we don't have enough money to do all the things that need to be done. Great ideas like UBI could solve so many problems, especially if you look ahead to AI and how that's going to disrupt the potential for people to cover their basic needs. Why is it that governments shy away from global tax reform? I think global tax reform is is very helpful. But of course, the, the reason people shy away from it is governments are seeking competitive advantage. So Ireland will want to drop the corporate tax rate in the hope of attracting companies to Ireland that aren't going to go somewhere else. It's also true that, of course, tax burdens around the world are historically quite high levels. So the UK, our public services are creaking and we would want to spend much more money on it. But tax as a percentage of GDP is higher than it has ever been. And, you know, the top 10% of income taxpayers contribute currently about 60% of the income tax receipts in some of like Britain. And again, the top 1% would contribute, I don't know what, 20% of the income tax receipts of the country. In, in most countries, the close to the majority of people pay less in tax than they receive in benefits from the government. In Britain, for example, people in poverty don't actually pay tax at all. It's only an income tax, the tax, the sales tax. All these things are tricky and they, and, you know, I don't want to get into a sort of huge argument about this, but obviously uh, the, the part of it goes to the question of whether you think governments are efficient at allocating resources. And, and since a lot of people tend to think governments are not the most efficient, competent things in the world, they fear that massively increasing the tax burden leads to many, many more inefficient programs. One of the advantages of Rutgers Universal Basic Income is that it theoretically gets around that problem because it's giving autonomy back to individuals. It's not some cunning civil servant sitting, uh, writing endless master plans and determining how best to spend your money. So two points, actually. I think that the numbers you quoted, Rory, are a little bit misleading if you just look at income tax. It's very important to look at all taxes. And there's been some great work done by the economist Gabriel Zuckman, together with uh, Emmanuel Says and Thomas Piketty that we all know, who've shown that if you actually look at all taxes combined in a country like the US, 
And I also know the numbers from the Netherlands, so I assume it will be more or less similar in the UK. We actually don't have progressive taxes. We have a flat tax that goes down a little bit for, for the rich. So it's around 30% for most people. And then actually, if you go to the very top, it declines to 20 or maybe 10%. But that's if you include all taxes. So for example, the value added tax is highly regressive because the poor, as we all know, have to spend more on of their income to actually survive. So in that respect, they pay, relatively speaking, much more in value added tax and other consumption taxes. So uh, I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. We do not have a progressive tax system, even in rich countries. We just don't have it. Uh, it would be a wonderful idea. It's true that the income tax is technically speaking progressive, but the whole tax system as such is really not progressive. Now, the other point about tax evasion and tax avoidance, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic here. Since 2019, I've seen progress. I've seen real genuine progress that I'm very excited about. So, for example, the Netherlands, uh, you know where I'm from, used to be a very, very big tax paradise. And, well, we recently had Gabriel Zoekman on the show, you know, the tax expert that I just mentioned. And I asked him, is the Netherlands still a tax paradise? And he was silent for like five, six seconds. And he said, I don't really know, actually. <laughs> so um, Bono and uh, all those bands, the Rolling Stones, they, they used the Netherlands to uh, dodge the tax on their royalties, etc. But much of that is coming down right now, actually. But maybe even more importantly, we are, we are making progress globally as well. So the European Union is actually leading the way. Just last year in December, they agreed to implement a 50% minimum tax for global corporations. And I think that's extremely important in stopping that race to the bottom. If you would have told that, you know, to, to any expert in this field 10 years ago, many would have said, you know, that's utopian, that's never gonna happen. You will never see that kind of international coordination. But it is happening right now. If, if the US and Europe together want to crack down on tax paradises such as, you know, the Virgin Islands and Bermuda, it's, it's very easy, actually. I agree, but they're not collaborating on it, though, are they? And I think it then gets in the way of the likes of what you're doing, Rory, because I think if you're asking people to, you know, help even with a small donation, and they see at the same time these sort of astronomical sums of wealth that are, are being hidden or, or passed away and not, not being paid tax on, it makes them feel less generous because they say, well, why do I have to do that? Shouldn't Surely should that be, be done by Amazon or should it be done by Google or, you know, Richard Branson once he's recovered? That's true. I mean, I think there are any number of excuses that people can come up with for not supporting the extreme poor. And, and that's one of them. And I can understand it. Uh, generally speaking, the reason people don't uh, support the extreme poor and why we haven't ended global poverty is people feel hopeless. And one of the reasons I like Rutger's emphasis on optimism is that you need a sense of hope. One of the reasons I'm so proud of Give Directly is that we're demonstrating that it can be done. That if wealthy philanthropists and, you know, if Richard Brantz is listening to this show, I encourage him to contribute as well. Wanted to, we could lift entire nations out of poverty pretty rapidly. The challenge is somehow convincing them first that they care enough about extreme poverty. And secondly, getting them to believe that we actually have a practical solution. And then thirdly, writing the check. No, I think it's I think it's brilliant that you your optimism goes all the way up to national national change. That's that's very exciting, and especially for the for an average person like myself, I go, okay, if I I want to make a change, I want to feel like something that's going to make a big change. But that's also that's also an, an inhibitor, which um, I think Rika, you kind of talked about when when you speak about the idea of of legacy. I think a, a lot of us don't give because we think 
no, when I become rich, then I'll, then I'll give, you know, then I'll leave this idea of a legacy <laughs> and the legacy is a huge yeah. idea. It's, uh-huh. it's so weird, the psychology around poverty alleviation that's, um, are there people working on that? Do people sit down and think, how do we change people's minds about the problem? It's a hugely exciting question. And I, I think it's something that we need to really bring you, all of you, uh, into this conversation. I mean, I love the way that Rutger has been talking. I've been taking notes while he's been speaking. Venture capital for people, you know, poverty is something we can't afford because there is a huge communications piece. If we're really thinking about shifting human psychology, getting people to have hope and faith, uh, getting wealthy philanthropists to contribute, but also I would love to see a global movement of ordinary people sending $30 a month from the global north to the global south would make a huge difference. But I'm not sure people have fully understood how easy it is to help. And I've been working in this field for almost 30 years. It, it's extremely liberating to, to understand how much difference can be made with a relatively small amount of money. But I don't know how one communicates this because there are so many different problems. There's the problem that if I talk about the global problem, it's a bit scary. People want to focus on the individual. But if, on the other hand, I focus on the individual, it's very difficult to persuade the billionaire to write the big check. And part, part, part of that is even describing poverty. I mean, obviously, the whole Give Directly model relies on the assumption that poverty is a scandal, that poverty is shameful, that extreme poverty is a horrifying life to live. But it's very difficult describing that today. It's difficult to show photographs of people in extreme poverty because we want to show respect to people. We don't want to make them appear as victims. We don't want to seem patronizing towards them. And the, the risk then is that we end up providing an unrealistically positive picture of people because we don't want to infantilize. But in doing so, people think, well, wait a sec, if this large, well-fed, smiling lady in Uganda is your recipient, why do I need to give her money? Completely. It's the, it's the comic relief dilemma of those fil- the appeal films because you go too far and you, you strain to all sorts of dangerous territories, don't go far enough, you don't get any money in. It's really hard. Rutger, I don't know what, you seem to be quite good at communicating through books and hmm. panels at Davos. What's your take on this issue? So I guess the problem, and maybe this is particularly so on the left or the problem with many progressives these days, is that they're mainly focused on what you're not allowed to do, right? Or what you're not allowed to buy. So don't emit too much carbon. Don't buy too much clothes. Don't do this. Don't do that. But I think we should focus much more on what you should actually do what you can contribute in your work and with giving away your money. We need so many things at the same time. We need systemic change. We need trade reform. We need, you know, a crackdown on sex evasion and sex avoidance. We need all of that. But we also need individual change. You know, I I often think that there's so many people who talk about systemic change, but, you know, they have a hard time even changing themselves. So sometimes I wonder, well, Try and change yourself first, and then we talk about the systemic change. So I don't know. As a, I think as a responsible citizen uh, in the year 2023, I think there are just a couple of things you basically need to do if you want the historians of the future to have a good opinion about you. So uh, the first thing is stop eating animals, uh, but that's another podcast. The second thing is give away... At- oh, it's this podcast. <laughs> okay. The second thing is give away at least 10% of your income. Um, and, you know, if you're like... a two or three or four times the medium wage, then it should be should be much higher than that. If you're a best-selling author like me, it should be much, much higher than that. And and yeah, do 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 rigorous research in what you can contribute, you know? Cyn- cynicism is a synonym for laziness. That's so often what's happening here is that people think, oh no, I can't do anything because it doesn't work. Well, no, you've just been lazy. 
do the research, you know, look into it and you'll find out that there are magnificent organizations out there like Give Directly and many others uh, that are doing fantastic work. So d- d- don't don't come with your, your, your cynicism and, and your laziness. Uh, I don't know. That's just a couple of thoughts I had. No, I mean, I want you to come and present every podcast we do because we always try and end on a note of optimism and also try and give our listeners something that they can actually go and do. So thanks for doing that. Rory, I don't know if you've got a final piece that you can help us feel optimistic about the future of this goal particularly and what gives you hope that we are ever going to actually get there? I, I believe we will end global extreme poverty within our lifetime. To do so would take a tiny percentage of global GDP, 0.1, 0.2% of global GDP to do. And there has been a technological revolution with mobile money, which makes it much easier now to deliver money to people's phones without having to worry. It gets interrupted by governments or middle people in the way. We've had revolutions in AI, which makes it much easier to target the extreme poor, particularly in urban areas. And we also have now the research and evidence base built up over 15 years on the extraordinary impact of cash on poverty. So I think we are now in a very, very, very powerful position. All we're lacking uh, is the resources and the faith to do it. But I think those things will come because the logic is there, the evidence is there, the arguments are there. And so I believe within our lifetime, we will be able to stop the shame of extreme poverty and our descendants, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will never have to see the kind of things that we can see today. That's a brilliant way to end this. Yeah, I'm down. I'm on board. I'm with you. Anything we can do, count us in. Yeah, we're totally down. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. That has been so helpful. Such fun conversation. And I think our listeners will get a lot Thanks out of everyone. it. Thank you so thank much. You really guys. appreciate it. Lovely to see you. Uh-huh. Thank you again very much. Man, I want them on every podcast. Particularly Rutger's optimism was it beat ours. Like he, that dude just thinks we're going to solve this. I believe the words was in our lifetime from Rory. Those were words he actually used. And that's somebody who was on both sides of the fight from the, the political side fighting and on the ground fighting, you know, a, a wide perspective there. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I th- we can totally do this within our lifetimes. And, and that gives me a renewed sense of hope. Uh, not even just hope, like just, yeah, I'll, I'll join that. Totally. I really also like Rutger talking about how cynicism is just laziness. You know, you can be cynical Oof. and say, ah, oh, they're going to, you know, drink it away or people can't be trusted. But I love his optimism in human nature because it just comes through everything he says. And if you just apply yeah. that optimism... In a very direct Dutch way, which is something where it was very effective. I, I enjoyed that. It was... Uh, there's no fluff around it. You enjoyed, you enjoyed his Dutchness? Yes, the Dutchness was like, you know, fatless. Just all the fat is trimmed right off. This is not bacon, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> this is not This bacon. is not Danish bacon. This, this is, is Dutch direct, no, fat-free no, no. truth. This is Dutch direct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's so great to just hear those kinds of things. But because it's also optimistic, you know, that idea of like, within our money traumas and our money perspectives that might be warped by whatever it is, Here's the cold hard facts about it. Here's the cold hard facts about what you can do. Here's the cold hard facts about the problem is. And we can actually just make a clearer decision. And the idea of like, oh, cash, just cash. It's just, it's, it's so simple. Give the person who doesn't have the money some more of the money. Yeah, it's not rocket science. I mean, it is complex, wasn't it? And yes. I enjoyed where we ended up talking about how you have to tread the balance between um, making people feel sorry you know like the, the old way which is look at the poor people they need uh-huh. some money that's not respectful and it's not uh you know it's sort of 
keeps them down, as it were, in our imagine, in our estimation. But equally, you need to tell the truth, which is, if you give someone a dollar, it's actually transformative. That's the word Rory kept using again and again. The the amount of change it will bring about, and we just need to keep telling that story. I think, like we said, the communication is one of the biggest hurdles that we have to get over on this thing. I think that's that's what also gives me a little bit of hope when we do do this podcast. It's like sometimes you feel like, okay, we're just doing a podcast, but it's like, oh, maybe if we can just reach another person, just reach another, you know, mindset that we can change. Because I know mine changes whenever we do these episodes. Well, let's, while you're still shifting, let's hope just in the emotional sense, let's wrap up what we have learned about how you end poverty in 30 seconds. Three, two, one, go. Any cynicism is just laziness. So do your research and uh, see how you can be more effective. Give cash, give cash, give cash. And don't wait until you are rich. You are already religiously speaking rich, most of us. And whatever small sum that you think you can spare is actually a huge amount to somebody living in extreme mm-hmm. poverty. As Rutka says, stop eating animals, <laughs> life on land, and give away 10% <laughs> of your income minimum more if you're wealthy. Yes, please. And support Give Directly. It's it's such a simple way. Yeah, to and do if you're it. not sure where you live in this piece, log into the World Equality Database and put your earnings in and you'll see quite how well off you already are. And also, tax reform starts at the home, so pay your taxes. taxes. Read Rutger's book, Utopia for Realists, for more inspiration. And one more time, Give Directly. Support. Oh, there we go. Time's up. There we go. But I think that's a lot. That's a lot. We can. We, it's a lot to go. You can do just by giving cash. That's already a lot that uh, you're already changing. And if you want to find out more, you can also go to globalgoals.org and click on goal number one, where you will find a whole lot more great tips on how to get involved. Well, that's me for this week. Loisa Matinga signing out. And Gail Galley. See you next time. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolen Goffa, Eli Block, Ali Winter-Taylor and Ivor Manley. And the executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. Now listen back to all the wonderful episodes in our archives, because they're still topical and full of tips on how you can change the world. If you like them, then just leave a short review. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Listener.